Welcome to Which Decade is Tops and Pops. We're back to the usual way of doing things now. We've got that Eurovision stuff out of our systems, and we are back to looking at records that were in the top 10 exactly 10 years apart. I've got Nick Parkhouse with me. Hello. I've got DJ Trev back from the fjords and back from a hardcore dance weekender. Hello there. And a big thank you to Chris Higgins and his shonky internet connection for standing in and doing such a great job with the Eurovision episode. My God, Nick and Chris bonded something rotten. There was so much trivia I had to leave on the cutting room floor for that episode. The geeking out even went beyond my levels of Eurovision geeking out, and that is setting the level quite high. Anyway, let's forget all about Eurovision. The Magic Randomizer has given us a year suffix of eight and a charts position of seven, which means we'll be looking at tunes that are at number seven in the charts on the 17th of May in 1968, 1978, all the way through to 2018. We've got playlists. You should know the formula by now, but if you don't, if you want to hear a YouTube playlist, you go to tinyurl.com forward slash which decade two four y. If you want to hear them on Spotify, knock out the Y, add an S for Spotify, which decade two, four S. And if you want the extra tracks and bonus bits, then it's which decade two, four E. Let's crack straight on with the 60s. This is I Don't Want Our Loving to Die by The Herd. This was the last of three hits for The Herd that started in September 1967 with From the Underworld, that was number six. It was followed in December 1967 with Paradise Lost, which got to number 15. But this was their highest charting hit. It peaked at number five. Their lead singer, who was then aged just 18 years old, was Peter Frampton, no less. After the band's follow-up single, Sunshine Cottage, flopped, Frampton left the band at the end of the year and he joined Steve Marriott from The Small Faces to form a new band called Humble Pie. And then as a solo artist, Peter Frampton had a brief spell of enormous worldwide success with his 1976 album Frampton Comes Alive. Meanwhile, keyboardist from the band Andy Bowne started working with Status Quo in 1973 as a session player and he eventually became an official member of the band in 1982 and he remains a member of Status Quo to this day. I Don't Want Our Loving to Die was written by Ken Howard and Alan Blakely. They were a highly successful songwriting duo. They scored two UK number ones with Have I the Right for the Honeycombs and The Legend of Xanadu for Dave D, Dozy, Beaky, Mick and Titch. I'll freely admit that I'd absolutely never heard of The Herd, uh, spelt differently. Um but from the sort of almost spoken word intro, I could tell I know a few things about this band, actually. I could tell that the guy with his haircut, he likes the jam, particularly Paul Weller, and probably is really into Oasis and the Cortinas. And I'm hoping from that description, everybody can picture the exact haircut that I'm talking about. After taking a break from this podcast for inverted commas, 
work commitments. I'm really massively reassured that this is straight into familiar territory. I was kind of like, oh God, am I going to remember how to do this? And no, immediately I'm back into my comfort zone of 60s nostalgia, nostalgia for a decade that I didn't live through, that I don't really have any idea about whatsoever, but it makes me wish that I had lived through it. You know, it's warm and cuddly and fluffy and I really like it. In the video, at least one of the band is looking at the camera in the way that I think I probably look at people when they film me when I'm DJing and they say that they're putting it on TikTok. And I'm, I'm like, I, I, I don't know what that means. He's literally looking at the camera as he's going, a pop video, you say? What the devil is this fresh madness? Two of the other guys in the band are genuinely sexy men. And the ones who aren't that sexy make up for that for some absolutely amazing style. I mentioned the proto-indie haircut. Um, there's Mick Jagger's suits in there, possibly Austin Powers. And the guy, like possibly musically, the only bit of this that I'm, I'm not really keen on, the guy's deeper second vocal, that almost feels like it's parody in the 60s a little bit. But he's a good looking boy. And I kind of think he just gets away with it. It's bright, it's fun, it's unashamedly pop. And there are weirdly, because I, I want you to go and look at the video because I just think it's it's a great postcard of the time. There are lots of videos of people playing the actual record on a really bad sounding dance set. This is obviously one of those tunes where vinyl enthusiasts are like, oh, listen to this. It's hugely improved when you can't really make out the tune because of all the crackles. And I'm, you know I mean, I've got, 3,000 records directly behind me as I'm speaking. But come on, like, listen to the actual song. It sounds loads better than some crackly, poppy, crunchy vinyl on a portable turntable. And I do think it's worth listening to. I immediately went and bought it. I cannot for the life of me think of a time when I will play this, but it's just nice to have in the armory. And yeah, it was a joy to listen to because it just got me reassured that I was like, yeah, I'm not in the wrong place doing a podcast about pop music because I've really thoroughly enjoyed this song. I'm the same, yeah. I I mean, you know, I have a, a working knowledge of 60s bands, I would say. Whether or not I've heard any of their music, I've heard of them. But this was a, a totally brand new one to me. I don't follow the herd. Um, never mind. <laughs> and all I, I, you know, looked it up. All I know of Peter Frampton is what everybody knows of Peter Frampton, which is show me the way. And Baby, I Love Your Way. I think that's what everybody knows about Peter Frampton. But this is great. I think we've covered late 60s before, mainly by Manfred Mann. And it all sounds a bit generic in some ways. Sounds a bit like you've heard it before. But this, to me, it does sound like something a little bit different. It's very new. Sounds quite fresh. They only recorded one album. If you go online, you can find a playlist of everything they ever recorded. It'd probably take you less than an hour to get through all of it. They weren't together for very long. Their previous single, From the Underworld, is beautiful and bonkers and nothing like this at all. And then their other single, Paradise Lost, also very different. So they sort of released three totally different singles of which this is my favourite just because it's a great little pop tune. It's got a very strange vocal solo in the middle, which sounds for all the world like it's Scott Walker doing it. It sounds incredibly like Scott Walker, but obviously it isn't. I also love the fact that it was co-written by the man who wrote the theme tune to BBC Miss Marple. We had that bloke who wrote, is it Would You Go to Bed With Me, that ended up writing the theme for The One Show. And I love that, you know, if you're a 
jobbing late 60s songwriter who's had a few number one hits, your next logical career move is BBC drama. There seems to be a career path opening up for people down that road. So good old Alan Blakely, who wrote that. I think for a 16-year-old, the vocal is fantastic. Yeah, I'd never heard of this before. I told my mum what it was, and she was like, oh, I don't remember that. And I played it to her. She was, oh, of course, yeah, that's very familiar. Of course, I remember what that is. She said, have you listened to From the Underworld? I was like, okay, I'll do that. So, yeah, I mean, you know, kicks off what I think we're going to establish quite shortly is a very, very, very strong week with an extremely strong uh, representative from 1968. Well, I had heard of The Herd, and I actually thought they were bigger than they turned out to be. Their success was so short-lived. From from The Underworld, entering the top 40 in September 67, and this one leaving the top 40 in July 68, they only had 10 months of being in the charts. But for those 10 months, they were a big deal. They were heavily promoted in the teenage pop mags of the day, and Peter Frampton was very much seen as the pin-up boy du jour. I think he won Rave Magazine's award for Face of 68. So, yeah, those first two hits, incidentally, both also written by Howard and Blakely, they are a good deal more musically adventurous, I'd say. They're more in keeping with the psych-pop wave of 1967, which we touched upon a couple of episodes ago. Paradise Lost, that's extraordinary. There's bits of it that basically sound like The Stripper for no apparent reason. But with this one... Howard and Blakely have steered them away from that more orchestrated psych stuff and into pure pop. And if those first two hits sounded like 1967, this one sounds like 1968, I think. You could bracket it with the likes of The Love Affair and Amen Corner. Pop music in the 1960s, it moved fast. And I've always felt that there was a pronounced change round about the end of 67 and the start of 1968, basically, the music that's hitting the charts starts to become less boundary-pushing and innovative and kind of more manufactured. All of a sudden, there are fewer groups in the charts who are writing their own material, and there are more groups in the charts who are basically fronts for songwriting and production teams. And I think the biggest reason for this happening was the outlawing of the pirate radio stations and the launch of BBC Radio 1 on the 30th of September 1967. The pirate stations, when they had their heyday, they basically had free reign to play anything they wanted and they were free to champion any interesting new developments that came their way. But with Radio 1, things were very different. The daytime DJs worked to a playlist and they were expected to cater for a mainstream market. This meant that the music that was being championed by Radio 1 was therefore less likely to embrace innovation, was more likely to embrace music that fitted their formula. So all of a sudden, bands that had had rock credibility in 1967 did one of two things. They either moved towards the albums market, and this is where we start to get this cultural gap between singles and albums for the first time, or they pivoted to pure pop. So Marmalade, they're a perfect example. Marmalade were kind of an underground band in 1967. They supported Pink Floyd at the marquee, for goodness sake. Then they went on to top the charts with a cover version of Oobla Dee, Oobla Da. 
the herd are basically doing the same thing here. Their songwriters, the Orkali operators, they could see which way the wind was blowing and they responded very quickly. And that is not to diminish I Don't Want Our Loving to Die in any way, because I think it's a glorious piece of work. Lyrically, it's sung from the perspective of someone who knows that he has to become a better person in order to make his new relationship work. And the whole arrangement complements this. It feels drenched in optimism, which again is a very 1968 emotion in pop. The chorus is sturdy and memorable. I love that weirdly posh bass vocal bit in the middle. It's a music touch. I like the hand claps, which come on towards the end, because they add a lift to that fade-out section. And in stark contrast to those grumpy old Manfreds, the band do actually sound like they are enjoying themselves. And then the herd blew it. Big time. So for their next single, Sunshine Cottage, they sacked off Howard and Blakely, and they recorded one of their own songs. It's just this awful, incoherent, badly produced mess. The single flopped. The team pop mags found new pin-up boys to drool over. Peter Frampton left the humble pie and went all heavy man. The band released one more flop single, reunited in 1971 for one final, even more flop single. They're almost forgotten about now. The streaming figures on their back catalogue are startlingly low. But this is an excellent pop single and it deserves to be remembered. So he was the face of 68, was he, did you say? Rave magazine's face of 68, yes. Obviously begs the question, who was the face of 69? Is that just someone with like some hair between their teeth and a bit of a squashed nose? We can but speculate. <laughs> when I was a little boy at prep school in Doncaster, we moved the locations. That's about when I was about 10 years old. And we moved to new premises that had previously been occupied by a Catholic girls' school run by nuns. And we took over their changing room facilities and still stuck to the wall were teen mag pinups from round about 1968. And there were the Love Affair and the Amen Corner and there were the Herd. So I am old enough to remember seeing pinups <laughs> of Peter Frampton, for God's sake. Wow. Right then, let's move on to... This is Never Let Us Slip Away by Andrew Gold. It was the second and biggest of three hits for Andrew Gold, and it peaked at number five. It followed Lonely Boy, which peaked at 11 a year earlier, and it was followed by How Can This Be Love, which peaked at 19 in June 1978. There was another 1978 single, Thank You For Being A Friend, only peaked at number 42, but it was later re-recorded by someone else as the theme tune for The Golden Girls. And then Andrew Gold later formed a duo called Wax with Graham Goldman, ex of 10CC. They reached number 12 in 1987 with Bridge to Your Heart. A later tune by Andrew Gold, Spooky Scary Skeletons, originally recorded for a Halloween album in 1996, but it became a viral internet meme in the 2010s, in particular on TikTok, where there are now over 5 million different videos featuring that song. Never Let Us Slip Away features uncredited backing vocals from none other than Freddie Mercury and a dance cover version of the song by Undercover reached number five in 1992. We've talked a lot on this podcast in the past about the point at which you arrive at a song, whether it was the Mark Armand and Gene Pitney version of that song or um, we talked about 
all along the watchtower of which version of that you heard first is your definitive one. So for me, obviously, when I was 18, just at uni, outcomes undercover, never let us slip away, which was a follow up to Baker Street, which had already been massive earlier that year. Um, a slightly weird album. Their album, Check Out the Groove, is basically cover versions of easy listening 70s hits, Ace, How Long, and uh, I Want to Stay With You by Gallagher and Lyle, obviously Baker Street, and this, Never Let Us Slip Away. So that was the first version I heard. I absolutely loved this at the time. I was obsessed with it. And also because I had just met someone. So what this does absolutely beautifully for me is that lyrically distills those early days of a relationship and the head rush you get and how excited you are when you meet somebody for the first time and you just absolutely fall head over heels and i think this song does that absolutely spectacularly captures that immediate kind of head rush you get when you meet someone so of all of those things combined in like kind of late 1992 meant that i absolutely loved this and of course at some later point i heard the original i thought god it's quite slow and chuggy isn't it um sort of dismissed it then i heard lonely boy and lonely boy is terrific i absolutely love lonely boy i think it's a terrific pop record so i went digging then i think i interviewed graham goldman about wax and about his relationship with andrew gould and the song bridge to your heart and that got me into andrew gold a bit more and then obviously i got into never let it slip away uh, what a very convoluted story that was. Um, I don't even know what genre it is. I saw it described as jazz rock, and then I saw it described as soft rock. I mean, Christ, it is the softest of rock, isn't it? You know, I don't think you could get a softer rock. I think it's probably slightly disparaged as that sort of 70s lounge type style. It's got a bit of Christopher Cross about it, hasn't it? And would you call it yacht rock? Mm. Is it the early days of Yacht Rock? So, you know, you see him in the video and God love you, Andrew, but he is the uncoolest man that has ever lived sitting at his piano with his big ginger hair and his shirt and jacket and stuff. And you just think, God love you, but not cool. And I doubt if this has ever been cool, has it? At any time. But if you said to me, I'm going to nuclear explode every single song that was made in the 70s and you could only keep five. I would keep both Lonely Boy and Never Let Us Slip Away. I think Never Let Us Slip Away is absolutely brilliant. Dave Grohl called it the most beautiful piece of music ever written, which is quite a compliment from a well-known musician. And he's not wrong. I don't know what it is. I think melodically it is brilliant it's beautifully written lyrically it's so lovely anybody who's ever been in the early throes of a relationship will know exactly what he is talking about you know we've been reunited during this podcast with songs that i love you know how it is with spotify they disappear off your radar don't they songs that you love because they're not on your current playlist or whatever and then all of a sudden for no reason one will come back to you i have had this on non-stop for about a fortnight i absolutely love this as uncool as it is so if the musical movement that the herd was part of gifted modern culture with a haircut that is currently being worn by basically people in cagoules and like more generally just Manchester, I think the cultural thing that Andrew Gold invented is the phenomenon of videos of ridiculously cheerful men looking straight into a camera, playing a bit of a keyboard, and then when different sounds come in, 
that gets visually represented sliding in. So do you know what I mean by the viral videos where there's like the kick drum and you see the kick drum in the bottom corner? Because that's how this video works. They're all stood around clapping initially. I mean, it's cheesy. They're all grinning insanely at each other, but it doesn't look forced. They actually look genuinely that happy to be there. And obviously in the, like the viral videos, the men all usually have beards because they're hipsters. And I, I think he's like, it's proto hipster. Looks like a right on dad who's, you know, going to be like cringy and, you know, kind of as I hope I am. Oh, just super positive energy, a bit cringy. But still, what Nick says about him not being cool. That's the coolest thing in the world when you're not cool and you don't care. And that's that's what makes him cool because he's not trying to be anyone that he's not. It, it just seems like such a wonderful man. The saxophone then, in halfway through the video, the sax solo just rocks up right next to his ear and he doesn't break character. He's just like, oh, yeah, this is fantastic. We're all having a great time. It is just a simple lovely love song you don't have to dig for the meaning you know you don't have to go oh what's it what does he mean by that that's quite oblique that's quite obscure that's hard to pin down oh no it's it's nailed onto the mass there you know what this is about it is absolutely as nick says that bit where you've gone mental you know those early days of love where oh my god this person's brilliant and there's loads of times when you kind of going i know this isn't actually right but it'll do for now and you've just gone bonkers and then there are other times when it is right and you know i, I i'm like i desperately hope whoever this was about it was the one that it lasted forever because it, it's about that insanity that you get for a while when you fall for someone and it's really really well done it's the kind of tune that pops up once every four years on radio two just randomly in the same way that nick said about spotify forgetting it but then it'll just come and you're like oh god oh yeah i've forgotten about this and then you won't hear it again for another four years somehow i'm gonna play this over summer in some garden somewhere some daytime festival thing that i'm doing i have no idea how i'm gonna shoehorn this in to one of my sets but i'm absolutely determined to do it I think as in love with this as Nick was, the vibe I got from it was a bit Barry Manilow. And my God, Manilow was a genius. So yeah, it's not cool. And that's kind of what makes it cool. It's not trying to be anything that it's not. There's no artifice here. This is just, here is a lovely song. Let's smile. Let's stand in a circle and smile at each other and clap our hands. It could almost be like a church group doing it. And that's not to insult it at all. It's heartwarming and I think really enriching. It was written about his girlfriend at the time, Lorraine Newman. I think they were together for a short period. I think he did let her slip away, unfortunately. But oh, yeah. I've talked before on this podcast about being a blinkered punk rock fundamentalist in my mid-teens. And I did regard most of what was in the charts round about that time with withering disdain. But there are always exceptions. And Lonely Boy by Andrew Gold was one of them. I absolutely loved Lonely Boy. If any of you have never heard Lonely Boy, I urge you to do so. I will put it on the extras playlist for your convenience. Now, Lonely Boy, that's quite a clever and a complex record. When I hear it now, I can totally see why Andrew Gold later teamed up with Graham Goldman from 10CC, as I think 10CC were doing something 
broadly similar at the time. Never Let Her Slip Away has a much simpler feel to it, particularly at the start of the track with that very stripped down arrangement. But the simplicity is deceptive. It's an extremely accomplished piece of songwriting and it hides its cleverness well. The melody flows so naturally, it's actually hard to imagine it being deliberately invented in the first place. It sounds like it just descended from the heavens, fully formed. I cannot imagine Andrew Gold sitting there thinking, oh, now where should this song go next? It sounds like the sort of melody that couldn't have gone any other way. And whereas Lonely Boy has a rich and detailed arrangement and benefits from that, I feel that Andrew Gold has realised that a melody this strong does not need to be augmented by too many production tricks. So he keeps things simple and he gives the song room to breathe. And that gives the record a carefree, happy-go-lucky, effortless feel, even though a lot of care has been taken in its construction. Those backing harmonies in particular, wonderfully well-conceived. Didn't spot Freddie Mercury on there, still can't. The jazzy sax breaks, okay, they are not particularly to my taste, but they make a good contrast with the verses of the chorus. And I like the way that the song kind of ends almost as it began. It returns to those simple keyboards and hand claps that you realise have actually been there all along. There's a smidgen of 50s doo-wop revivalism there in a way that Billy Joel also mined, I think, occasionally. But it's not done as a pastiche. It's only really those sax breaks that particularly tie the record to the late 70s or maybe the early 80s. Apart from that, it's a timeless piece of work, still sounds fresh today. Love it. Here come... The 80s! This is Theme from S-Express by S-Express. It was the first and biggest of three top ten hits for S-Express. Reached number one, stayed there for two weeks. They had three more smaller hits, each peak lower than the one before. That took their chart career through to March 1991. But then in May 1996, a remix version of Theme from S-Express by the Hard House legendary DJ Tony DeVee peaked at number 14. This track samples 14 other tunes, 14. But most notably, it samples Is It Love That You're After by Rose Royce. So as what is realistically, if I'm honest, a side hustle, I'm very much into dance music, uh, rave music, hardcore, techno, gabba, happy hardcore, jungle, and upfront dance as well. I find dance culture awesome. And whilst compared to the rest of my job, it really brings in remarkably little money. As hobbies go, it is up there with Star Wars for me. It's really important to me. Obviously, undoubtedly, modern dance music, where we're at at the moment, it stands on the shoulders of lots of things. Uh, you know, you've got the gay club scene, you've got rare groove, early hip hop, obviously rave music. There's 80s electro music. There's very obviously disco. But there's deeper things in there. There's sort of 70s kraut rock. You can go further back to Northern Soul. But what I think is a really important era for modern dance music is the era that we're about to talk about now. So the late 80s of dance music is where it first started bothering the charts when it was definitely dance music. This is definitely dance music. You could call it house if you want. So all the influences already existed before this point, but S-Express, Bon the Bass, Black Box, Starlight, all these kind of acts started to 
put them all together and create something that was new. Now, when you listen to this tune, it's impossible to get away from the disco of it. And then obviously the video, you know, is very disco orientated as well. But even though the influence is there and, you know, the samples, these are unashamed samples, it's still a new form that's emerged. And I think this is a really, really important period of time because everything that's come after kind of started here. There are some bits in this that, you know, aren't marvellous. It's mainly the video side of things. They didn't know what to do with videos. So they're all pretending to sing the samples, which is just awkward, looks a bit naff. But, you know, you've got to remember, I mean, particularly Mark Moore, he was a DJ. And what are you going to do in a video? This was before the age of Steve Aoki holding a cream cake and putting it into people's faces and David Getter doing weird love heart symbols whilst his CD players aren't even plugged in and he just jumps around smiling and waving and his pre-mixed thing plays. So what was he going to do? So I think you could totally forgive that. It's a really simple record, but that simple looking back now. We go, all right, yeah, I see see how you've made that. At the time, this wouldn't have been simple. The samplers and sequences and software, this would have taken a computer the size of, like, Sheffield City Centre to make this. They were doing it all on tape-to-tapes, and, you know, they had no memory, Amigas and Ataris and ZX Spectrums and, you know, those calculator watches. That's what they were making these things on. And I think it's really, really impressive because it's still sounds like something that could get released tomorrow you know sonically it's right there the production techniques have come along there's so much stuff now that you know really really incredibly rich sounds but this doesn't sound dated and crackly enough it's a great era of music s express and bomb the bass particularly were artists for me who are a lot more important i think than they get credit for because they took it into the mainstream this was on the radios it wasn't just specialist djs playing this and Yeah, I think it stands the test of time. This is an incredibly tough week to organise the voting thing. So I don't know where I'm going to put this. But nevertheless, I think it's a brilliant tune. I still play this fairly regularly. It's not prime time. This is lovely warm-up stuff for me. You stick it on. People know it. It gets some of the heads nodding. There's not going to be many people listen to this and go, ugh, because it's not gone full circle to the dance music that's all just doof, 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 doof. this has still got plenty of it that makes it worth listening to so yeah it's a, a very firm thumbs up to me whenever i hear this record i am immediately transported back to the dj booth in a nottingham club called eden late the name was kitsch i had a thursday night residency there playing to a mixed lgbt crowd they were equal parts newly politicised campaigners against Section 28. It was the period when gay men and lesbians really came together in a way they never had done before. And the other lot were basically trendy style mag fashion victims. Oh, they were great nights. Loved doing them. And every time I hear that track, I literally visualise being in that DJ booth. This was one of the very biggest tunes. It had everything my dancers wanted. Cleverly used samples, 70s disco revivalism, a house-adjacent rhythm, and a strong visual image. It was also an absolute doddle to mix into. That juddering one-note intro section, it went with anything. And the uno, dos, tres, cuatro sample that they lifted from Gil Scott Heron's The Bottle, that took uniquely into the brass sample from Is It Love That You're After? And then away we go. 
it wasn't the first record to be heavily studied with samples. I reckon the first tune was probably Double D and Steinsky's Lesson One in early 1984, which didn't get an official release at the time, but copies found their way into the hands of tastemaker DJs. How that had an influence definitely was an influence on Kolka, for instance. In terms of big releases leading up to West Express, I think the first one really was the remix of Mars Pump Up the Volume. It was continued by Bomb the Bass with Beat Dis. I always think of this one as the third in that particular trilogy. I put them together in that sequence. Most club sets at the time, at least in the Midlands, oscillated between hip-hop and house throughout the course of the night. So these 114 to 116 BPM sample tracks, perfect bridging tracks between the two genres if you were trying to beat mix all the way through backwards and forwards. This one had that extra ingredient of 70s disco. That, at the time, was a very fashion-forward thing to do. 70s disco revivalism was a new thing, and it was a very trendy thing. I included quite a lot of disco in my sets, and it was basically a natural progression from the rare groove funk that you'd heard everywhere in 1987. And I'd also sometimes mix directly between S-Express and the Rolls Royce original, as you would. It's weird, though. I'm far more familiar with the 12-inch version. The 12-inch includes a sample of an avant-garde performance artist called Karen Finley. Now, understandably, this was chopped from the radio edit, as the sample repeats her saying, suck me off, suck me off, suck me off. And that is directly followed by, oh, that's bad. Oh, that's good. So when you hear that second sample on the radio edit, you don't have the full context which I think is a bit of a shame, really, if understandable. My other favourite of the many samples on the record is the brass break. That comes from a 70s disco jazz funk track called Crystal World by Crystal Grass. Now, I picked up Crystal World by Crystal Grass just a few months later for next to nothing in a second-hand record shop in Nottingham. Didn't know about the connection until I played it, and it was like, oh, my God. God, that's the S-Express sample. That was an exciting find. I still play Crystal Grass out to this day. Played it about a month ago. It went down well. People danced. S-Express, they were led by a DJ called Mark Moore. Now, he was running a weekly mixed gay house night called Pyramid. That was at Heaven in London. Now, Pyramid had been one of the first London clubs to properly pick up on house music at a time when in London, house was still mostly shunned in favour of hip hop and rare groove. There were some homophobic reasons for that as well. Theme from S Express is, you can tell, it is very much informed by Mark Moore's crate digging prowess and by his DJ's ear. However, although it absolutely caught a moment in spring 1988, but the acid house explosion of summer 1988 made this track sound dated just six months later, when all of a sudden those sample heavy tracks just faded away. It did eventually have an afterlife, especially with that Tony DeV remix in 1996. But I reckon, yeah, you can play it out. It does okay. It's not prime time. Although it was massive at the time, I don't think it's ever really fully join that 80s revivalism canon that you'll regularly hear played on the radio or in bars today. And this happens a lot. 
tunes that were intensely fashionable at the time often date badly while tunes that were deemed uncool at the time they're the ones that end up sounding timeless i have an interesting side note on s express's name right s express were inconsistent in the way they spelt their name on this record the first record s hyphen express on most of the others s apostrophe express but on their third single hey music lover it's s apostrophe express with the first letter missing from express so the express starts with an x you get me in other words and this was a deliberate prank on behalf of the band went right under most people's radars they dropped the e so you get radio dj saying and it's a new entry from s express they dropped the e and you get interviewers asking so why have you dropped the e as a later number one would have it no e no e very no e <laughs> when you, you mentioned acid house they did have acid house credentials s express check out the fluffy bagel mix of superfly guy that was a legendary acid tune and that's aged really really well but that's not really particularly accessible you know it's super cool acid house they could do really quality acid house the fluffy bagel remix of superfly guy is sensational and i think what i like about this tune is it's that sweet spot between it's got one foot in the underground but one foot in the charts that's you know where a lot of for, for me dance music kind of reaches perfection yeah i think s express did react quickly to acid house because again pop music was moving really quickly by the time superfly guy was ready to come out it was properly up and running at Schumann Spectrum and all those sort of places. The other interesting thing they did with the third single, Hey Music Lover, there were a bunch of remix versions came out. And one of them, they got Philip Glass, the contemporary classical opera composer, to do a remix of Hey Music Lover. And what they did was they took Philip Glass to an acid house night and he stood there for a couple of hours and he went, OK, yeah, think I get it. And he went off and tried to do an acid house remix of Hey Music Lover didn't actually add any drums being Philip Glass. I was so disappointed when I bought it and I realised it was completely unusable as a dance record. I didn't like this at the time because it wasn't the sort of thing I was listening to. Uh, saying that, because I'm a pop fan more than anything, I absolutely love Hey Music Lover, which I think is an absolutely brilliant pop record. And I like Superfly Guy as well more than this. This is a song that I really like now. I don't know why. So it has been a bit of a grower over the years. I was looking at the charts in the week this was in the top 10. And it was just, you know, I talk a lot about 1988 being the greatest year in the history of pop music. And this is why. Charts this week, Aztec Camera, Summer in Your Heart, one of the best records ever. Scrissy Politio, Patty Kim Wilde, Pet Shop Boys, George Michael, One More Try, which is a great record. Debbie Gibson, Ofra Hazard, who we talked about in the last episode was in the charts this time. Uh, the Adventures, Broken Land, which is still one of the best late 80s albums made, The Adventures, A Sea of Love. Uh, Hazel Dean, Who's Leaving Who, Belinda Carlisle, Danny Wilson, Banana Rama, and, of course, Climby Fisher in the charts this week. Almost everything in the charts, with the exception, potentially, of the Anfield rap by Liverpool FC, which was in the top three this week. But it's just a brilliant variety of stuff. And just, and then obviously this, you know, it was number one. So, yeah, I have no insight to add. I've never played it. I've never been a DJ. I've never played it out. But uh, it went on my transport bangers list 
a few months ago when I was doing transport-based bangers. Is this like your version of the Eddie Stobart Truckers playlist? No, on Friday afternoons at work, we have a bangers every Friday. The idea is because people work remotely, they can press play at the same time and everybody listens to the same thing. And it's always got a theme. It's always like weather bangers or food bangers. And there was a transport bangers, which obviously had motorcycle emptiness and love train and um, theme from S-Express. Oh, well, you know. I've actually heard Mark Moore DJ, but it took me into 2003 to hear Mark Moore DJ. I've been to see the Rolling Stones at Wembley, right? And my cool friends said, right, when you finish seeing those Rolling Stones, you want to get yourself down to Vauxhall. There's this electro clash club called The Cock. And there's this band come over from New York that never played the UK before. And they're called the Scissor Sisters. You ought to come. So I went. Saw the Sister Sisters' first ever UK show at this achingly trendy Electro Clash club. Thought they were brilliant. And then Mark Moore did an Electro Clash set afterwards. Absolutely fantastic. Just thought I should mention that. All right, let's move forward to... The 90s. The 1990s, this episode, are represented by Steps with Last Thing On My Mind. This was the second of 14 hits for Steps between November 97 and January 2002. It peaked at six, and all their hits after this one went top five, two of them reaching number one. That was the double A-side Heartbeat and Tragedy and Stomp. The band split up in 2001. They've reformed twice since then, and they are still officially together now. They've had three different Greatest Hits albums, all of which have reached number one. Most recent of them topped the album charts, just last September. Last Thing On My Mind was originally released as a single by Banana Rama in 1992, but it only reached number 71. The song was co-written by Karen and Sarah from Banana Rama with Mike Stock and Pete Waterman. You don't have to have listened to very many episodes of the podcast to know where we're going here, do you, boys and <laughs> girls? So when 5678 came out i think maybe as a lot of people did just discounted it it was not all that long after hillbilly rock hillbilly roll because in the sort of mid to late 90s the uk was in an absolutely inexplicable line dancing frenzy and so 567 came out and you just think well that is a novelty hit isn't it ladies and gents and then out of nowhere as their follow up single they do this they do what stock and waterman did a fair bit which was recycle some of their old songs. Hazel Dean had a hit with a Kylie album track, and obviously Steps themselves had Better the Devil You Know, which was Kylie's. So they they did recycle their own songs. The Bananarama one, in this instance, from 1993, they upped the BPM and made it Steps' follow-up. One of the noticeable things about it is the abbaness of it. We're a year before Mamma Mia musical coming out, but a, a few years after they re-released Dancing Queen and stuff. So there's an interesting ABBA and it's about to come to a cusp because the year after this, we get that ABBA ITV special with Billy Piper and all those. And they do thank ABBA for the music and stuff. So we're a little bit before that, but you've only got to watch the video of Last Thing On My Mind to see the Mamma Mia influence in the way that they film it. You see someone head on and someone side on lip syncing and stuff. It reeks of ABBA. It's a sort of ABBA-ish song in a lot of ways, isn't it? Lyrically, it's about a sort of end of a relationship. The Bananarama version of this, the production of it's not that dissimilar. It is slower, but it's very different. The Bananarama version is kind of plaintive and sad. 
it's sort of quite uh, depressing, but it's really downbeat about somebody who just didn't see the end of their relationship coming, which is essentially what the song is about. It's about somebody going, thought they were very happy in a relationship, and then out of nowhere, of all the things that I was planning for, this was the last thing on my mind, and someone ends a relationship out of thin air. And the Banana Rambage is really sad. They really sell it as this kind of melancholy breakup song. And there's none of that in the Steps version. We're talking about Never Let Us Slip Away now. When the undercover version came out when I was right at the start of a relationship. It's slightly weird that the relationship ended just as Lasting On My Mind by Steps came out. And actually, the other person didn't see it coming. I always felt slightly bad listening to this record because I thought, I'm that person. You know, I'm the one that is just leaving the past behind and uh, they absolutely didn't see it coming when I kind of ended the relationship so I've always felt slightly bad about this when I hear it it makes me feel slightly guilty because I did that at that time anyway this is turning into therapy now isn't it um so obviously steps after this went and had I think they had 13 consecutive top five singles just incredibly successful some absolute bangers in there you know, Love's Got Hold of My Heart and After the Lover's Gone and obviously the cover chain reaction and all that sort of thing. I've seen Steps twice. I saw them at the time. I think I saw them in 1999 at the NEC in Birmingham. And then I saw them relatively recently when they did one of those reform things and did all the greatest hits on tour. So I've seen them twice. I absolutely love Steps. I mean, what is not to like about Steps? It is frothy, entertaining, three-minute pop cheese that you just, lightens your day i listened to steps gold today and god it cheers your day doesn't it it just brightens up the darkest of days with its glee so yeah i am fully on planet steps one of the things i find really interesting about this is whilst the lyrics are relatively easy to follow I'd never actually given any thought to what it means because it's a cheerful song. I'd not put any thought. And, and as Nick was talking, I'm like, oh yeah, actually, yeah, this is about a breakup. And sometimes for, for me, songs wash over me. And it is most of the time, it's about how the sound, it's not what about the singing about. They could be singing about anything. They could be singing about the inside of a ping pong ball and this song would still have the same effect on me. And I think this is why I love pop music because when this came out, I hated this. I loathed and detested it. I thought it was derivative Eurovision-worthy cheese. I thought it lessened you as a person if you listened to this. This was just chart crap. And then since then, I've stopped trying to be something that I'm not, i.e. cool. And I've realised I'm completely right. It's banging. I mean, it is derivative Eurovision-worthy cheese. It's, you know, you're, you're not scratching the surface of this and getting anything other than more cheese. If you left this out in the sun, it would sweat. I think maybe the reason that I didn't like Steps at the time was because it was at the dance end of the pop spectrum. And I, you know, at the time I was a serious dance kid. It was the last few years of me being a serious dance kid, really. So, you know, I was listening to, Still techno, Hard House had come along and I was dance music and pop-wise, non-shell-past, particularly the type of pop music that's kind of trying to be dance music. But once I let that dickhead part of me die, 
I've realised there's loads of stuff that's done this through the decades. Stock Aiken and Waterman did the slightly dance thing in the late 80s and made some absolute pop standards. And yeah, this is it's standing on the shoulders of Stock Aiken and Waterman, I think. Uh, I think they've got a great marketing image as, you know, a commercial band. It's shiny. It looks fantastic. The songs are really well made. And yeah, it does owe a lot to the music that I at the time related much more strongly to and you know to this day i still relate more strongly to dance music but it's not an insult to dance music when i was younger i kind of thought oh look at they're taking our music all kinds of musical scenes do this what are they doing to our music and i was one of those i'm gonna say twat you can edit it out i was one of them twats and now that i've let that go i can just enjoy it for what it is and letting go of being precious is one of the best things I've ever done because I enjoy loads more music just for what it is. I won't sit at home and listen to Steps. I'm not even guaranteeing that if Steps came on the radio, I wouldn't change the station because, you know, it's not music that I would choose to enjoy. But when I am listening to it, I can enjoy it for what it is. And it's fun. I can't take anything away from people who want to enjoy camp high energy party music because that is only after all, a few steps away from the type of music that I like. I maybe should try and apply this process to pop punk because I like proper punk. And then I go, oh, pop punk, what have you done? But then there's loads of really good pop punk bands out there. But to get back to steps, taking them for what they are, it's very, very well done. Not my cup of tea, but not far from what my cup of tea is, which is maybe why I reacted badly to it when I was younger. And I'm so glad I'm over that. It's thumbs up, isn't it? It is essentially just reloaded Stock Aiken and Waterman, isn't it? It is just yeah. them rebooted for the late 90s, essentially. I've talked before about this syndrome I've had over the years about being too cool for school about something at the time and only coming to recognise it later on. I was never too cool for school for steps. I immediately took to steps. I love their stuff. I didn't mind five, six, seven, eight. It was a silly line dancing novelty song. Certainly gave no indication that steps are going to stick around for the next few years. But this one, the second one, lasting on my mind, this single properly established that step sound. And to my mind, they never bettered it. This is still my favorite step single. I'd love to say it was one of my favorite SAW singles, but yeah, Matt Aitken never had any involvement with it. Mike Stott was only involved with the Banana Rama original. And Pete Waterman worked on the Steps remake, but even then he only co-produced it with two other guys. It's mixed by someone called Waterman. That's his son. That's Paul Waterman. It's interesting. Pete Waterman hadn't actually been around for most of the 90s. I think he was more interested in trains than music for a few years. So this was quite a comeback for him. And it paved the way for his subsequent appearances on Pop Idol, where he was greeted as one of the great elders of pop music kind of re-established him in the public eye as a music guy yeah this has a lot of the elements of the classic saw sound but it doesn't slot right back into their late 80s formula there are some wonderfully effective drum fills on this that i haven't heard before on saw stuff they really add another level of excitement to the track there are some elements that kind of follow on from Handbag House. I'm thinking particularly of the way that the chorus just careers straight into this fantastic surging instrumental break. It raises the energy even further than the chorus did. And then it drops right back down for the second verse. 
And yeah, as Nick has already talked about, there's the blatant homage to ABBA, which we hadn't quite had so clearly before in SAW. And then there are steps themselves, who, God bless them, as always, perform the song as if they've never given a single passing thought as to what the lyrics are actually about. It takes a special kind of genius to sing the words, now you're suddenly like a stranger and you're leaving our love behind, while grinning from ear to ear as if you're having the most fun ever. And while there's every reason to find that irritating, I find it rather endearing. And they went on to do this over and over again. One for sorrow, they'd say, sticking up a finger and grinning like maniacs. Yeah, OK, maybe they knew what they were doing. Maybe it was all a clever conceptual conceit, you know, sing sad songs with happy faces. But then I remember the time that Faye Tozer from Steps was a guest on Nevermind the Buzzcocks. And during the lyrics round, she was given the line, when the feeling's gone and you can't go on, she went, I don't know. It was tragedy by Steps, which had already gone to number one. I mean, God bless her. And God bless Steps. What a wonderfully stupid pop group they were. <laughs> they are. What do you mean they were? And are. And will always be. Yes. Their comeback single, which was, I think, 2019, was it Scared of the Dark? It's brilliant. It's absolute peak steps. Oh, God, that comeback album. It's bloody fantastic. I couldn't believe it. Every bit as good as the old stuff. Right then, it's time to leave the 90s behind and proceed to... This is Cry For You by September. It was the first of two hits for September. It peaked at number five and it was followed a year later by Can't Get Over. That peaked at number 14. Then we never heard from her again in this country, at least. September is the performing name of a Swedish singer called Petra Marklund. And Cry For You was produced and co-written by Jonas van der Berg. He also worked with other Swedish acts such as Ace of Bass, Alcazar, Stacker Bow. Now, although Cry For You bears a strong similarity to Bronski Beat's Small Town Boy, Jonas van der Berg has been quoted as saying, direct quote, there might be some similarities, but we had no idea. That was not intended at all. And please note, none of Bronski Beat receive a composer's credit on the track. And then in February 2022, Charlie XEX and Rina Sawayama had a hit with Beg For You, and that is based quite heavily on Cry For You. Wow, I had completely forgotten about this. And this is amazing. So Steps, who we've just been talking about, wouldn't have happened without S-Express and the influences that they had. I think the likes of this wouldn't have happened without Steps. And this is a dance tune. This is more credible-ish, but... It still owes a lot to the, you know, the Steps world of pop music. It owes, I think this owes more to Pete Waterman and Kylie Minogue than all the credible stuff that led up to S Express. And, you know, I think that just the musical family tree of commercial dance is just awesome because this is definitely, it's the pop end of dance music, but it still is dance. This is city center cheese, the sub donks, it's almost donk. Donk's come back around now and it's got a bizarre, really underground following as the Donk sound alongside such accessible genres as breakcore and glitchcore. 
donk is massive. And this is the type of stuff that it's proto donk. I can't wait to play this on Saturday night. Drop this in in the middle of the current tunes. It's so cheesy, but like all good cheese, it's aged very well and it might leave you with a slightly waxy skin, uh, but that's fine. I think this sound is back. There are tracks in the charts that don't sound a million miles away from this. You know, you couldn't say it's a forgotten classic, but it'll be a retro anthem for four or five months, I reckon, and then it'll probably just disappear off into the distance and, you know, you maybe won't think of it again for another 15 years or whatever but pop music is meant to be disposable this is quite disposable love it for a bit then forget it melodically did anybody get chris isaac wicked game from this but yeah good fun visually video wise it almost looks like a steps video which again is interesting that that aesthetic has become kind of credible how i don't know but yeah by this stage this is what dance acts were doing and they were looking like fully formed pop artists great stuff sub donks so that's a new one on me sub donks trev i've got to ask you is there a bdsm dynamic to the donk scene because if you've got sub donks have you also got top donks right the bdsm dynamic is very much what they were let's say some of our outfits are wiped clean should we say so Trev, you say, oh, I've forgotten all about this. I don't know whether I've ever heard this in my life. Before the magic randomizer threw it out the jukebox a couple of weeks ago, I genuinely have absolutely no recollection of ever hearing this before. And it came on and I thought, oh, look, it's Small Town Boy by Bronski Beat, but apparently it isn't. So we can't say that, although it does owe a little bit to that, doesn't it? I mean, it's even the same instrumentation as it. It's not just the same melody. It's actually the same synth sound. Anyway. So consequently, I don't know anything about September other than she was born in September. So I'm guessing that that's why she called herself September, unless she loved Earth, Wind and Fire. Who knows? Uh, there is no evidence to, to support either of those claims. Uh, she lives in London. I believe she's very much working in the music industry. And she was nominated for the Swedish government's Music Export Prize, which is the least sexy music award in history for the song cry for you wow i mean she must have been gutted not to win that i mean it's fine it's a probably sadly forgettable slice of late 2000s pop i was getting slight robin vibes but a little bit poppier than robin a little bit less complex it was the first swedish song to get gold certification in the u.s since ace of bases cruel summer there's a fact for you nine years previously so it obviously did quite well in america as well i'd never heard it before i have listened to it i'm gonna go out on a limb and say i probably will never listen to it again unless it pops up somewhere but not because i don't like it just because why would i why would it ever pop up randomly ever again again no bad thing on september she does a great job of it it just i can't see it ever arising yeah i was utterly gobsmacked when I discovered that the makers of Cry For You refused to admit that it was in any way inspired by Small Town Boy. I mean, come on, pull the other one. It's a blatant steal. I'm surprised there hasn't been a court case. Yes, I've said this in public on the record. I'm surprised there hasn't been a court case, to sue me. I'll admit that now I know that, it's put me off the track a bit. Because before I knew that, 
I thought it was a smart pop move. I thought it indicated that the people who made the track had great taste, but I assumed that in that case, they would want to recognise the people who inspired them, but no. I think what it has done is it's helped keep the memory of Small Town Boy alive. I play that Bronski beat track quite a lot. Younger people all recognise it. They all get into it. That pleases me a lot. Small Town Boy, obviously, is a total classic. So I'm glad it's kind of made the 80s canon. Wouldn't have expected that until I played it out and saw it for myself. There's also an echo of Small Town Boy in the Oliver Heldens remix of Heatways by Glass Animals. And I've sometimes gone between the two, and that works nicely, and that gets them all going as well. As for Beg For You, which I thought Nick might have known because it's a Charlie, XEX, and Rena Sawayama collab. I missed that at the time. I think it improves on the September track. They've lost that Ronsky beat keyboard riff completely. Uh, the arrangement is more creative. It's less generic. And that is my basic problem with the September track, apart from ripping off Bronski B. Yeah, it's effective. I do enjoy listening to it. But at the end of the day, I find that arrangement just a bit too generic. And I think September herself is deeply generic as a performer. I don't get any personality from her at all. Whereas Charlie XEX and Rina Sawayama, they've both got personality by the bucket load. Nick, if you've not heard that, I think you'd enjoy it. I love a bit of Rina, but I wasn't aware of that. So yes, I will look that up. Yeah. Modest hits. The other tune I definitely think this reference is, is uh, Kylie Minogue, Can't Get You Out of My Head. The video looks like it's homage to that video. She's wearing a similar sort of shade thing. The dance routine's very, very similar. And that dunk, dunk, dunk type thing is definitely in there. But maybe the producers of September hadn't heard that song either. Uh, I don't know. They definitely hadn't heard Small Town Boy. All the way in remote Sweden. Yeah. Could somebody, for the love of God, please tell me what Donk Step is? Give me an example of a song that would fit in, that I would know that is Donk. Uh, so Donk, it references the offbeat, the whereas disco records would go... A donk hit would be put a donk on it by the Blackout crew. An awful lot of house and trance has donk in there. So Darude Sandstorm, it's not quite a donk, but it's got that sort of surge, the boom, 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 that type of thing. What about Venger Boys? Just boom, 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 have a donk on it. Yeah, yeah. But again, before donk happened, yeah, so there was those tunes that paved the way for this donk movement that was very sort of a Wigan Pier type thing. Um, Scouse House uh, was quite donk-led. But it was very, very commercially accessible dance music. Slow, happy hardcore, if you like. But there weren't many tracks that did a lot of damage in the charts. Bass Hunter, they did donk stuff. But this sort of donk sound came and then went and then now has got a cult following. Okay, I don't think I know any more about Donk than I did a minute ago, but I'm now reading a website of a history of Donk in 10 Donk songs, and I don't know any of them. It's a heavy offbeat. So uh, instead of the percussion, you know, like hi-hat or hand clap or like a cowbell, instead of that, it's got a bass note. It's not a melody bass line. It's a one-note thing that kind of pulses away. Nick, I will put, put a Donk on it by the Blackout crew on the Extras playlist for your listening pleasure. You cannot go through life without ever having here. It is. It's magnificent. Bad boy, chill and what? The theme to the magic roundabout. Has that got a donk? No. No? Right, OK. Oh, there must be a donk version of the magic roundabout theme tune out there. Surely. Right. Surely. Anyway, look, 
the 2010s have been waiting patiently in the wings, but they can't hang around all night. So let's bring on... And representing the 2010s this time, we have George Ezra with Paradise. This was the third of seven top 10 hits that George Ezra has had to date. Peaked at number two, spent 53 weeks on the top 100. His next top 10 hit was Shotgun. That topped the charts in July of the same year, 2018. His most recent hit, Green Green Grass, has already spent 50 weeks on the top 100. And it's still currently at number 19. Let's rewind to the 1970s where we met a deeply uncool man singing a song about the psychological effects of falling in love, not for the first time, but in the initial throes of a new love affair. We fast forward 40 years, we get exactly the same thing with George Ezra and with Paradise. So again, George Ezra, from where I'm sitting, deeply uncool, I would say. And I'm not trying to be disrespectful i just don't think yeah even i wouldn't wear a george ezra t-shirt right and i quite like george ezra but i wouldn't be seen in one and i have a coldplay t-shirt so that tells you everything you need to know so he popped along george ezra like uh, we get a lot of these don't we new british solo artists who come and they have a massive hit don't they like budapest and then a lot of them disappear like rag and bone man they sort of come along have a big hit and an album and they get nominated for some Brits and then they disappear into the thin blue sky like Duffy. So the fact that he actually managed to follow up a first album four years later with something that had a number one single, whatever, massive kudos. His third album, he's had a top three hit from that. So he's managed to sustain a decent chart career in a way that a lot of these, here's the next big new thing, singer, songwriter, don't. So more power to him for that. I imagine there are a lot of people out there who find his songs incredibly annoying because they are a lot of chorus. I'm not going to say that they sound like one another, but they are cut from the same cloth. Shotgun, Budapest, Paradise, Green Green Grass. You know, you put a fag paper between them in terms of the arrangement and all that sort of thing. Now, I like it. It's inoffensive and entertaining. And I think Paradise is probably my favourite of all of his records. It's 140 BPM. It really does rattle along incredibly quickly. Um, It's much better than Shotgun, which is, you know, sitting in your patio in the sunshine with a magnum. Shotgun's a great tune to have on in the background. You know, it's the summariest song you could imagine. Paradise, I really like it. I think it chugs along. It's got a great melody, sing-along, easy to listen to, hit. He won Best Male at the Brits on the back of this album and this single and stuff. So it's not cool in the way that lots of these songs have not been cool. But I love it. I think it's a really great late 2010s, catchy, radio-friendly, Radio 1 and Radio 2 pop song. So well done. Well done, George. I think it's fair to say that there are lots of musical artists, pop artists, who look exactly as you expect them to sound when you hear them. Uh, on my Night Force radio show, quite a lot of the time, I'll drop in some Euro dance records. Artists like Le Bouche or Two Unlimited or Culture Beat. And they look exactly how they sound. The sleeve might as well say shaven headed man with his chest out and a girl wearing essentially bondage gear, which we've already referenced. 
if you listen to the last artist, September, I'm pretty sure you can form a mental image of what she looks like without having seen her, and you'd probably be quite right. I don't think I'm on my own when I say <laughs> I fell off my chair the first time I saw what George Ezra looked like. I was like, no way. That's no, no, there's a mistake here. Something is wrong. That's not his voice. Now, it, it's fair to say that the pop world isn't exactly short of uh, white men. There clearly isn't a mountain for them to climb to make it to the top. But that isn't to take anything away from George Ezra. Uh, I think he makes very, very good pop songs. He's got a rich, wholesome voice. He uses it very well. Under no circumstances did I expect him to look like a young farmer, which is what he looks like, but I still think he's outstanding. I think these tunes are danceable and singable, and some of them I do think are a bit generic. Shotgun and Green Green Grass, I thought Green Green Grass was essentially just Shotgun Part 2, but even so, I actually think he's one of this generation's greats. I think Miley Cyrus, Bruno Mars, Taylor Swift, Lizzo, I think I would put him ahead of Ed Sheeran, if I'm honest. I'm really, really glad that he's come up. There's loads of people who say, you know, modern music's rubbish and it's not worth listening to. I think people who think that aren't actually listening to it. This is just a great pop song. I think he's a great pop artist. This is uh, excellent, excellent pop music for me. Right. Well, this is normal at the point in every episode where I come in and completely trash the 2010s. I'm not going to do that this time. It would be way too easy to be all snooty about George Ezra. I mean, right, as singer-songwriters go, he's not exactly Nick Drake, is he? But then, unlike Nick Drake, George Ezra doesn't write music to be listened to in lonely bedsits. Instead, in a way, I think Paradise has actually got more in common with the S Express and the Steps and the September tracks in that they are all tracks that work particularly well when enjoyed in the company of other people. Their appeal isn't so much on an individual level, it's on a communal, collective level. So the S Express Steps and September tracks, they come properly alive on the dance floor. I think you could argue that George Hesworth's hits really come alive if you're singing along to them with thousands of other people at a live gig or an open-air festival. And even if you're not singing along to them with thousands of other people, you can still kind of imagine yourself doing so when you're listening to them. Yeah, like Ed Sheeran, like Lewis Capaldi, George Edger has got a down-to-earth, ordinary bloke next door, unassuming, unstarry appeal. But unlike Ed Sheeran and Lewis Capaldi, I do enjoy listening to his music, or should I say, listening to his biggest hits, which are Budapest, Shotgun, Green Green Grass, and this one. I don't actually know any other George Ezra songs. I have zero interest in taking a deep dive into George Ezra album tracks. That is absolutely fine. Four big, infectiously cheerful sing-along hits. It's enough for me. And it's a lot more than many other more critically revered artists can manage. I wouldn't say that the underlying song craft here is particularly exquisite. But the way the whole track is put together is very smart. Very effective. You've got 
the steady up-tempo chug, 140 BPM. Yeah, that sounds right. That chug propels the track along. You've got the call and response in the verses. They're tailor-made for festival crowds. You've got those cute little stutters, my mind, my time. You've got that whole campfire sing-along feel that he always does so well. You've got a really brief rock-out passage with some nice guitar overdubs, and that drops right back down to an even throb. Then you've got a very repetitive middle section, which with every repetition builds and builds and builds, a bit like a dance track. You've got a really rich widescreen production, all sorts of deft little details in the mix. And then you've got George Ezra himself absolutely selling it with that lovely, rich vocal tone, which always draws me into the few songs of his that I know. It's not high art, but is artfully crafted and I'm absolutely buying what is selling as long as I don't have to buy a full album. And Nick, when you were talking about people who won a Brit Award and fade away, I'll add two more to that list. James Bay and Ben Howard. Where are they now? The albums are quite solidly put together. Even the slow ones are quite affectionately done. Things like, is it called Hold My Girl, I think, which was a single as well. Their albums are great. When I'm great digging... And I want to play something with a bit of depth. Uh, he does a tune called Did You Hear the Rain? Obviously, I'm not seriously crate digging by going, oh, I'm going to show my abilities here and show my knowledge by playing some George Ezra. But that's a very good song. And it's not uh, a catchy pop anthem. Would you like all the top 10 hits with the word paradise in the title? It won't take long. Well, we're not going to be able to stop you, are we? You are absolutely not. Guns and Roses. Go on. Off you go. Don't play in George Ezra, Paradise, Paradise. Uh, Guns N' Roses, Paradise City, correct. Stranger in Paradise for both Tony Martin and Tony Bennett. Amen Corner, you've already mentioned them today, if Paradise is half as nice, uh, was a number one. Bird of Paradise by Snowy White. And that's not the first time we've mentioned Bird of Paradise by Snowy White, which is weird. But anyway, Gangster's <laughs> Paradise, Halfway to Paradise by Billy Fury. Going back to my roots, Rich in Paradise, which was a double A side for the FBI project, 1989. And finally, Phil Collins, Another Day in Paradise. <laughs> Lovely. What a lovely playlist that I'm never going to listen to. Right, okay, <laughs> let's do some voting. Nick, let's start with you, please. Well, I'm going to give my minus one to Cry For You by September, only because I have no knowledge of it, and now I do. Well, I say now I do. I don't think I could tell you how it went now. I briefly had some knowledge of it a few days ago when I listened to it, but I don't anymore. I would genuinely say that in other weeks, any of these five could have been my top one. And I feel bad putting two of these in the mezzone. But I am going to put The Herd in the mezzone, which I think is an absolute travesty. I think it's brilliant. And I'm going to put the theme from S Express, which I can't believe that that's going in the mezzone. So any other week, these would have won. This is going to be a quite hard one, I think, for listeners to judge. It's so good. In third place, I will go for the 2010s, George Ezra Paradise. What a great record. Second place, I'm going to go for the 1990s. Last Thing on My Mind by Steps, which is an absolute bop. And my number one is, I think, the best song we've had so far in all of the episodes of this, which is Andrew Gold's Never Let Us Slip Away. This is one of those, we've had a couple where I've really not wanted to pick a least favourite. It's absolutely, you can't use the term worst for it. I don't want to pick any of these for my least favourite. So I'm just going to rip the plaster off. I'm going The Herd. I think it's a travesty to have this in last place. I think that could have been in another week. That could have been number one. But there we go. 
the steps and September, I think, possibly have split the vote there because I think they're relatively similar. And I, I think the top three is so strong, though. Uh, so those three that I've just covered, that is not an insult to any of them. Any of those could have been number one on another week. Third, I'm going Andrew Gold. I think it's an outstanding record, but the other two just speak to me a little bit more. Second place is S Express. That's an important tune. Definitely artistic. They would go out and do gold above that. But I think S Express is game changing in some ways. Uh, and I don't think it is actually a game changing tune. It just is a great postcard of that sound that was game changing at the time. And my favourite, I am going George Ezra. It's right on the, it's poppy, almost indie, festivaly drunky arms around you mate but i'm also dancing yeah perfection i think just write them down yeah because that could change in 30 seconds i've struggled with that top three really i have committed your votes to paper interestingly nick you and i are almost exactly on the page here there's only one very slight variation in how we voted here yeah my minus one I really went off it when I discovered the lack of credit to Bronski B and then it just, it's charm kind of fell apart on me there. So I'm September gets my last place. I cannot believe that I'm putting my beloved theme from S Express by S Express into the Met zone. I mean, it's just ridiculous, but I'm putting it there because ultimately for me, it's a time capsule. It evokes very strongly, really like a three month period in British dance music culture. I don't know about how it resonates to me now in 2023 or to anybody else in 2023. So it's got to go in the Met zone. The herd are also going in the Met zone, which is very unfortunate for them. It's a it's a lovely piece of work, but we've got such a strong top three, and it's gonna shake out like this. I'm gonna put George Ezra, he gets the one point. Would never have expected that when I first saw the list of tunes. It's so good. So good. Then we've got Andrew Gold in second place. And we've got Steps in first place. The surging joy I get from that Steps record has never, ever gone away since I physically bought a copy way back in 1998. So, Nick, identical with just Andrew Gold and Steps reversed there so looking at how the results stack up we're just the three of us voting september is in last position the herd just above them in fifth position s express in fourth position then there's a jump and we've got second equal a tie between steps and george ezra and winning at the moment just ahead Andrew Gold from the 70s is our current leader. This is where we throw the voting open to you, listeners. As always, you need to specify your first, second and third favourite songs in descending order of preference. No tied positions, please. And also your most bad and hated, but I think really this week, your least favourite, if you can bring yourself to do that. If you want to make any additional comments, fab. We love having comments. We'll read some of them out in the results bulletin. If you don't want to make comments, your votes are just as valid. Do feel free to vote without commenting, should you prefer. Our favourite way of commenting is through our Patreon. That is patreon.com forward slash which decade tops. 
price of a latte per month, three pounds a month, you get to join the supporters club community. You get email updates about new episodes, which saves you sifting through the increasing tangle that is Twitter. You can leave password protected comments and votes on uh, the episodes there, uh, away from the harsh glare of the public gaze. And you'll be helping us to cover the costs of putting this podcast on. And we'll be most grateful if you could do that. Just at this point, special shout out to Joris. He's the newest member of our supporters club. Thank you, Joris. Welcome aboard. But if you don't want to sign up to Patreon just yet, you can still vote via Twitter. That's at which decade tops. Gmail, which decade is tops at gmail.com. Facebook, search for the name of the podcast and you'll get to us. Voting deadline, 6pm UK time, Wednesday the 31st of May. Right, so thanks very much for joining us. Oh, I wish every week was good as this, you know. I mean, all weeks are good, but this week was great. Thank you, Nick. Donk. <laughs> Thank you, Trev. Cheers to her. <laughs> Goodbye for me. Goodbye. <laughs> Which decade is Tops for Pops?